Thank you, Chris. And Chris failed to mention that our family of the week to pray for is Chris's family. So make sure you keep the Matthews lifted up, especially Claudia as she goes to pick up Izzy from college. And uh, Jerry here strumming on the guitar. You saw him. And of course, for our brother Chris. So we are in the book of Nehemiah. And uh, we are uh, trucking through uh, chapter one and chapter two, really savoring each of the, uh, the teachings that the Lord has given us through that. So we're only going to take two verses today, um, but, I, <clears throat> but these verses are really weighty. And um, I want to give you just a quick little background. As, as you know, we're in the book of Nehemiah, which is uh, one of the last books written in the Old Testament. <clears throat> uh, Nehemiah, Ezra. And um, Nehemiah, Ezra, and Malachi are the three last books before we get to the intertestamental period where there's no writing from the, uh, from, uh, there's no revelation from the word. And then we have the New Testament. And so before Jesus came, um, things had to change in Israel. The, the Jews were dispersed because of the exile, because they had sinned against God. They were taken over by the Babylonian captivity, which was then taken over by the Persian captivity. And both northern and southern Israel were scattered everywhere. And the book of Nehemiah and Ezra are about the regathering of the people to the land, the building of the temple again, and the building of the walls around Jerusalem so that it could be re-fortified. And so that way it would make way, as God said, behold, he says this right at the end of Malachi, I am going to come suddenly to my temple, and I'm going to send my messenger before me, which we know is John the Baptist. And so this is a really critically important book for that reason historically, but also Nehemiah is an incredible inspiration for us. As Nehemiah went to build the walls of Jerusalem, we are called in Christ to go out and build for his kingdom uh, in our world, in our sphere of influence, in our particular calling. And so that sort of summarizes where we are. Last week, uh, we talked about Nehemiah's burden for action for God, his motivation by God's promises, and how he stepped out to build for God's kingdom despite all of the opposition that was to come. And where we left off last week was in verse 18, where Nehemiah told his friends, he says, look, the reason I'm here in Jerusalem at night or right now, walking around, looking at all the devastation is because the Lord God put it into my heart and he's made a path for me. He opened the door. He changed the king's heart and the king allowed me to come back to Jerusalem and build these walls. He says, I need your help. And they said, this sounds like a really good thing. And they said, let us arise and build. And then our call to action last week was let us arise and build. Let us go out and build for God's new temple, which is what? The kingdom, his church, all of us make that temple complete. And so the things that we do here now on earth for the Lord, especially God is orchestrating it all for his good, for his glory. And we get to be a part of that. So God just, he doesn't save us from the world. He saves us for the world. And so that leaves us a lot of contemplation. What do we do? How do we do it? And what happens when we do have those obstacles? 
And today we're going to talk a little bit about those obstacles. But first, I want to read these two verses that we're going to go into, starting at verse 19, which should be on the monitors. After they said, arise and build, uh, and they put their hands to the good work, verse 19 says, but when Sanballat, the Hornite, and Tobiah, the Ammonite, official, and Geshem, the Arab, heard it, they mocked us and despised us and said, what is this thing you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? And he's talking about the king of Persia at the time. Verse 20. So I answered them and said to them, the God of heaven will give us success. Therefore, we, his servants, will arise and build. Now, this is all happening out in, in, in this area of devastation. And then uh, Nehemiah says, but you have no portion, right, or memorial in Jerusalem. He's saying this to Sambalot, Tobiah, and Geshem. And so we're going to talk about why they don't have any right. We'll definitely speak about that. But really what I want to focus on here <clears throat> is the intimidation factor. The intimidation that they were trying to put onto Nehemiah to stop the word of God. Now, when we often think of intimidation, we think of it as being frightened or threatened by someone who wants us to do what they want or somebody who wants us to think the way they want us to think. And so they'll, they'll intimidate. It can come from someone's physical appearance, some big giant guy looking at you, aiming his eyes at you. That can intimidate you, especially if you're about to do something he doesn't want you to do. It could have nothing to do with appearance intimidation. It could be because of someone's status in society. They're very important. You get seated at a table at a banquet with like the mayor or with somebody even more prestigiously has a great reputation and you get intimidated. You know, what am I supposed to say? Am I supposed to talk? Am I not supposed to talk? Someone of great importance or notoriety walks in a room like let's say a well-known actor walked in here. Okay. I don't know. Whoever you like. Me, I love Robert De Niro or Sylvester Stallone. He walks in here. Oh, what's up? You know, that would, no, we would be intimidated, right? Like what's going on? <clears throat> it doesn't matter how somebody actually looks. It doesn't matter how somebody actually, what their status in society is. However, because of the world that we live in, we see it as something that is intimidating to us. We're seeing physical intimidation right now in our country. We have the Supreme Court judges being protested at their homes even. Right now, there's all these people who are against this leak that was uh, Roe v. Wade is going to be overturned by the Supreme Court. And so now what's going on? All these protests are happening. But why are they doing it? They're going to the judges' houses to physically intimidate them. So intimidation comes in all shapes and sizes. It can work, too. It can make you silent. It can make you inhibited. It can cause you to do things you don't want to do. But here in Nehemiah's case, it can also cause you to rise to the occasion and face the intimidation head on. And in our passage today that we just read, Nehemiah was being intimidated by all of the above. Physically, he was being intimidated by the presence of Sambalat, who was a government official at the time. He was intimidated by Tobiah, who was the Ammonite official as well, Geshem the Arab, and I'm sure they had all of their troops and support with them. Nehemiah was being psychologically intimidated by the stature of these men. After all, he'd never been to Jerusalem before. 
He just, he just traveled 800 miles from, from Persia all the way to Jerusalem. <clears throat> and of course, he was mentally intimidated. The enormity of the task in front of him. <clears throat> he was about to embark on rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. All he had was he had a letter from the king. He had some resources. But if the people in Jerusalem didn't want him to do it, even the ones that he was trying to recruit, he was going to have a problem, let alone the construction aspect and the enormity of this job. So we can be sure that wherever God is leading you in your calling, whatever he is calling you to do as a Christian, you can know for a fact, it's not if, it's not maybe, but it's definite that God's opponents are going to intimidate you. It could be spiritual, it could be physical, it could be mental, it could be psychological, or it could be all of the above or just one. But people, when these things happen, when we see these obstacles, and we see these seemingly impossible circumstances that stand in our way, we have to go back to this book of Nehemiah and see how God was with the person that he called to do this work. But you personally, if you do get that intimidation, if you do have those obstacles, what do you do? How do you handle it specifically? So I'd like to take a look specifically at this intimidation that Nehemiah was facing uh, when he was thinking of building these walls, and it was, excuse me, found out by his opponents. And so we can see how we can follow his example when we're faced with the same stuff when it comes to the calling that we have to build for God's kingdom. So how was Nehemiah intimidated? Well, first of all, we do see this psychological intimidation by his, and get this, his and God's enemies. His and God's enemies. Because they were one and the same. These people were enemies of God, and they were specific enemies of Nehemiah. And you could look here in verse 19. It says, they mocked us and despised us. There's nothing worse than being mocked. If you get all of the fights that ever happened on the schoolyard uh, parking lot, it's probably because one boy or one girl was being mocked by another. Mocking could be one of the most annoying things that you can ever hear. And a lot of times we see this within even in Christian circles. Some of you may have a wife or a husband that doesn't really believe. Then you start coming to the Lord and you start following Christ and you start changing your ways. And typically what happens is, is there's that little bit of dissension and people face this stuff in their own family. How do you handle that? Well, God wants us to handle it with love. He wants us to handle it with example. He doesn't want us to handle it with confrontation. But it can get in your head. But you see, the core of this mocking and, and being despised by Nehemiah's opponents, Sambalot and Tobiah specifically, is because these two men have a very long history of being enemies of God. Not specifically, but who they are and where they came from. And so if you look, if you want to, if I was to say, what is this Bible about? Somebody was to say to me, what is this Bible really about? There's a lot of things we could say. We could say it's about love. It's about God loving us when we were unable to love him. You know, it's about God's plan of redemption. 
Some people like to use B-I-B-L-E, basic instructions before leaving earth temporarily, okay? Put a T on the end there because we're going to be back in our resurrected bodies on our new renewed heaven and earth, right? But if you were, I like to look at this as if I was to see what this book is about in the context of what we're talking about now, this book is about battle. It's about a battle. It's about a battle between two seeds. God's seed, capital S, and Satan's seed. And it starts in the book of Genesis. In Genesis chapter 3, after Adam and Eve had fallen and disobeyed God and brought a curse upon the earth and upon themselves, God didn't say, well, I'm going to start all over again and remake it all and I'm going to make sure that this doesn't happen again. No, this began the battle. Genesis 3, 14 and 15, the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, this meaning tempted Eve, made her eat the apple. Adam, of course, went along with it. Because you did this, cursed are you more than all the cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you will go and dust you will eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity. I will be, there will be a battle between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He, meaning her seed, will bruise you on the head and you will bruise him on the heel. And theologically, this is interpreted as the battle between Satan and his offspring, those that that are non, they do not want to follow God, the ones that Satan can intimidate versus the seed of God, which is Christ. And so if you look through the Bible from through the Old Testament, you can really make it uncomplicated when you start looking at it through this. Because you see, what had ended up happening is, is the whole entire world had fallen into sin. And every man born of woman is full of days, and his days are full of trouble. I believe it's, it's quoted in Job. And the reason his days are full of trouble is because he's a, uh, he is, by nature, he is an enemy of God. That's what it says in the New Testament as well. And it says in Romans 5 that even while we were enemies with God, even while we were God-haters, Christ died for our sins. So we were God-haters. But God said, I need to redeem this world in the midst of this fallen creation because God is just. He's not just going to lift the curse. He's not just going to be like we do sometimes as parents and say, yeah, go to your room for three hours. And then in 15 minutes, we say, all right, no problem. Just come out. You know, just don't do it again. You know, sometimes we give too much grace there. No, God is a God of justice and order and righteousness. And he's perfect. He's loving. And he doesn't just do things like that. So how you can encapsulate the Old Testament in this one little pocket, I guess you could say, is when you look at it through the filter of this battle going on. You see it all through the Old Testament that God is preserving his seed. It comes through Abraham, right? Isaac, Jacob, through the people of Israel, going into bondage, coming out of bondage. God leading them through the wilderness. And there's this whole picture of God preserving his people. 
And then there's this also picture of God's enemies constantly trying to infiltrate, make the people of God stumble, make the people of God go off of God's plan. And every time that happens, God continually redeems him with his love and his grace and brings them back and brings them back. What was God waiting for? What was God aiming for? He was aiming for the Messiah to be preserved, the line of the Messiah, the line of Jesus to be preserved. When he would come, and take on the sin of the world and then open it up, not just for the Jews, but for the whole world to know about the gospel of grace and become children of God. And so you see this, I mean, you see it with with Cain and Abel. Uh, You also see a very good picture of this seed, uh, you know, his head being crushed. Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army, this is in Judges 4, 18 It says, Jael went out to meet Sisera because Sisera was running for his life. Okay, he was the captain of Jabin's army, who was was a Canaanite army. And you remember Deborah, she was a prophetess and she was also a judge and a ruler in Israel at the time. Well, she was going after Sisera and Jael was just a, you know, a regular average woman sitting around in camp and she sees Sisera trying to hide and she, knowing what's going on, calls him into the tent. She said, turn aside, my master, turn aside to me. Don't be afraid. And he turned aside to her into the tent and she covered him with a rug. But Jael, Heber's wife, took a tent peg, seized a hammer in her hand, went secretly to him and drove the peg into his temple. My kind of girl. And seriously, it went in through the ground. The head was crushed of the enemy. He was sound asleep and exhausted and he died. Now you see this, uh, like a story in the Old Testament like this, but this is a perfect picture of the battle throughout the Old Testament of God's seed and Satan's seed. And we see symbolically here, God letting Satan know, you can't try to get my plan off course. This is ultimately a picture of what's going to happen with Christ because he crushes the head of, the sa- of Satan. He crushes the head of the serpent. Where? At the cross, by the nails going through his own body and his feet and his hands and the spear going through his side, he wins the victory. <clears throat> the enemy, okay, the enemy, Sambalat and Tobiah, yes, they're the physical enemy, but behind them is the spiritual enemy <clears throat> to provoke those who are God's people. And you could also become provoked by, God, by, by God's people as well. Sometimes Satan, if he can't get us to do, to stop or slow down, he gets behind us and he pushes us forward into, into a direction that is seemingly good and righteous and the right thing to do, but we push and we push and we push and we go ahead of God. So the one thing that we have to know is that this battle has gone on from the beginning. And this picture, this picture right here in the year 445 BC with Nehemiah about to build the walls, the enemy here sees, wow, this is part of the prophecies. We know that this is going, that, that God is bringing this to come to pass. So what happens? The enemy sends in Sambalot and Tobiah and Geshem to intimidate Nehemiah. Now, how do we overcome this? When we're, going, when we're doing our job now as a Christian, we're out there living for the Lord. We're, we're, we're in his will. We want to do, we want to please him. God has called us 
to do whatever it is. Maybe you're a mom, maybe you're a dad, maybe you're a, uh, um, your, your profession, you have a professional career, maybe you're an entrepreneur, maybe you're a student, doesn't matter. I'm not just talking about calling like God's called you to start a ministry. I'm talking about your purpose in this life. There's no hierarchy in the Christian world. There's no, somebody's more important than the other. This isn't the highest attaining of spiritual thing to come up and preach the word of God. This is what God's called me to do, but it's no more important than somebody out there who's, who's mowing the grass. And he's out there, by the way, we need someone to mow the grass. Um, someone who's mowing the grass. It's no more important to God. Like the body has little parts and big parts, but they all work together. So we have a responsibility to be prepared against the enemy. And how do we do that? I feel it's three ways. First of all, we have to be uncompromising in our view of the Old Testament and New Testament. Uncompromising in the Bible. Be committed to the word of God as your truth. This is where you get your truth from. We mentioned this. You don't get it from out. You don't get it from politics. You don't get it from people. You don't get it from culture. You don't get it from the changes that are going in the world. You get it from the word of God and you apply it to those things. Those are all good things, but you apply the word of God to them. You don't take those things and, and, and then start with them and then sort of let me go to the word of God as like a little dip that I can dip onto this chip. That's not how it works. Be committed to the word of God as your guide. You go to the word. Now you have to read the word in order to have it as your guide. So we should be on a regular basis in the word of God, reading it for nourishment for ourselves, and applying it to our day-to-day life. And when we have an issue that comes up, we have that person or that thing in our life that's intimidating, that's haunting, that's causing us maybe to go this way instead of straight, we need to go to the word of God. Now, this is what Nehemiah did, remember? He went to the word of God in the very beginning and said, Lord, according to your word, you promised this. Lord, according to your word, you promised that. And he, he biblically went to the Lord and God honored that and heard his prayer. The second thing is, is our communion with God. <clears throat> this must be our fuel. And I say it all the time, out of any, uh, anyone that I ever talk to that's struggling with their relationship with the Lord, whether it be marriage issues or whether it be personal issues, whether it be a sin that they're struggling with, I would say 90% of the time it's because they've stopped or fell back on their communion with God or they became stale in their communion with God. Communion with God is what Nehemiah did. He prayed to the Lord. He wept and fasted and prayed for four months before he went to the king and asked if he could come to rebuild the walls. That was his fuel. Nehemiah saw Tobiah and Sambalot, and then I'm sure he was like, oh man, what do we do? And then he said, wait a second. I communed with God. God sent me here. God is on my side. We remember those moments, right? God called me to do this. That has to be our fuel. Communion with God is simply praying with God, talking with God, pray to him. You go to him and you commune with him on a regular basis. It will be the hardest struggle of your life to do this. It will be. You'll get up in the morning and you'll say, I'm going to start off my day 
with some prayer, with the word. And then before you know it, you notice, what is that doing over there? And then you get caught up in that. And then you check your texts. And then you're going and you're following the trail. And before you know it, you're saying, well, I'll pray later. And then it rarely happens, does it? Or I'll just pray on my way to work in the car. Now, that's good. Or I'll just pray when I go to sleep tonight. That's good. But if you did that to your spouse or your friend and said, I'm only going to talk to you once in a while when it's convenient, that relationship would go to the Lord specifically, on a deli- deliberately, and commune with him. It doesn't have to be this long period of time. Let the Lord decide how long it's going to be. You just go and you pray. And so you committed to the word of God as your guide, your communion with God <clears throat> as your fuel, and of course, finally, the will of God is your assurance of going. The will of God is your assurance of going. And, and so you have to be in God's will. And so I, I, I'm, I'm assuming that if you feel that God has called you to do something in your life, you seek him out like Nehemiah did. You get the doors opened and now you follow that will of God. That's your assurance. And then you can overcome those enemies. Now, the other thing I believe Nehemiah was intimidated by was the fear of man. And I guess this would be mental intimidation, the fear of man. Proverbs 29, 25 says, the fear of man brings a snare. The fear of man brings a snare. And I'll explain what a snare is in a minute. He who trusts in the Lord, though, will be exalted. See, he who trusts in the Lord, he's exalted. See, this, the Proverbs are always comparing, contrasting irony and different things. So the fear of man is a snare that holds you back and brings you down. But the fear of the Lord, he who trusts in the Lord, you're exalted. So it's a polar opposite. It's the exact opposite. <clears throat> fear of man and trust in the Lord. You see those two things? Fear of man, you go down. You care about what everybody thinks about you. You care about what he's going to say, what she's going to say. Then that's going to be a snare and it's going to lead you into sin. Listen to Abraham, right? Abraham in Genesis 12, 11 to 13, met the Lord. Abraham, I'm calling you out. I'm going to send you out and I'm going to make, uh, you're, I'm going to bless you so much that your descendants are going to be more than the sand on the seashore. Every nation is going to be blessed, Abraham, through your seed. Wow. All right. So Abraham goes and he takes one step at a time. He's led by God. But what happens? Well, Genesis 12, 11 to 13, it came about when he came near Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, see now, I know you're a beautiful woman. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is my wife and they will kill me, but they will let you live. Please say that you're my sister so that it will go well with me because of you and that I may live on account of you. He just threw his wife over to the Egyptians to save his life. Just say you're my sister. The fear of man brings a snare. That was a sin in multiple ways. Of course, God was gracious. <clears throat> and he said again in Genesis 20, 11, when he did it a second time, he said, I, because I thought surely there is no fear of God in this place and they will kill me because of my wife. There was no fear of God. But meanwhile, he, was, he is the one that is supposed to be fearing the Lord. Jesus said in Matthew 10, don't fear those who can kill the body but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body 
in hell. And, and, and who's he referring to there? He's referring to God. And so we must fear the Lord. If he has called us, we must fear him. Now, what is this snare? I don't know if you like to fish. I love to fish, right? And so what we do when we fish, as you know, if you fish with live bait, you get a hook and you put that bait on there and you throw it out and you catch a fish. You reel it in and you, if it's a bass, I don't know, I don't do seawater fishing or saltwater, so you, you take the hook out and you throw it back or you keep it or whatever. But I don't know if you've ever fished and the fish just consumes the hook so deep down its belly that you can't get the hook out. And if you pull, you rip out the fish's guts. You don't want to do that, right? That's what a snare is. You're caught up and you cannot get out without damage. And that's the fear of man. You will make wrong choices based on the wrong premise. See, the wrong premise is, is the fear of man. I'm going to let man dictate it. The wrong premise with Nehemiah would have been like Sambalat. He's a government official. He's got a whole army behind him here. He's going to report me and try to say I'm, there's insurrection going on. He's going to say that the king is going to be like, what are you talking about? And he tries this later on. You're going to see. He, he actually tells the king and goes, look, look what these Israelites did a couple hundred years ago. They tried that. They were a strong kingdom. And they had a huge temple. And the whole world feared them. This guy's trying to raise up the Israelites again to overcome you and your kingdom. That's what Sambalot tells uh, King uh, Artaxerxes. I think it's in chapter 6. We're not there anywhere near there yet. But Nehemiah was, could have been very much intimidated. I don't think it's going to work. I mean, logistically, it's just not right, you know. Let me try to negotiate and let me try this. And no, no, that's not what he did. He basically said, I am going to follow the Lord. The Lord brought me here. I am not going to be intimidated. He was intimidated physically by these men as well. Now, again, remember I said, who are these men that God said, that, that Nehemiah said, you have no, no um, portion, no right or memorial in Jerusalem? Well, Sambalot was a Moabite. He was from Moab. Tobiah was an Ammonite. Now, if you go through the Old Testament, you will see that the Moabites and the Ammonites continually were a thorn in the side of Israel. They continually tried to foil God's plans. They were in conflict with the Israelites from the 13th century. It was the Moabite king, Balak, who tried to persuade Balaam to curse Israel. Remember that? Balaam's donkey, right? Balaam was going to try, he wanted Balaam to curse Israel, but God turned it around and had him bless him instead. Uh, instead. That was 1 Samuel 1447. <clears throat> Remember when David <clears throat> committed the grave sin and slept with Bathsheba and then killed her husband to cover the crime after she became pregnant? Israel, during that battle, the one who killed Uriah, her husband, were the Ammonites. He was in battle with the Ammonites. And it says in that chapter, David stayed home and didn't go into battle. And so, again, we could see this influence. 
There's so many different other ones. Solomon built a shrine for the gods of Ammon. After of gods of Ammon, after Solomon started to marry these uh, other wives that were that were not from Israel, they got a foothold on him, and he started worshiping their gods. One of those was the gods of Ammon. She, he, one of his wives was an Ammonite woman, and she forced him to worship uh, the god Molech. During the reign of Jeho- uh, uh, Jehoiakim, the Ammonites allied themselves with the Syrians. They attacked Judah. I can go on and on and on. But listen to Deuteronomy 23, 3-4. <clears throat> this is before all this happened. No Ammonite or Moabite shall enter the assembly of the Lord. None of their descendants, even to the 10th generation, shall ever enter the assembly of the Lord. Because they did not meet you with food and water on the way out when you came out of Egypt. And they hired against you Balaam, the son of Beor, from, uh, from Pethor of Mesopotamia to curse you. That's Numbers 22 if you want to read that story. Numbers 22 and 23, Balaam. But God had basically cursed these two people. But it even goes further than that. You see, Moab and Ammon were two direct descendants of Lot and his daughters. A heinous crime against God. Sodom and Gomorrah had gotten destroyed. Lot and his wife and his two daughters, because of God and Abraham, they escaped the destruction. But what happened? Lot's wife was incited to what? Turn around and look back when she was told, God said, the angels of the Lord said, do not look back. When she looked back, she became a pillar of salt. That sent Lot into the mountains with his two daughters. Genesis 19, 30 to 33. Lot went up from Zawar and stayed in the mountains and his two daughters with him. He was afraid to stay there, so he stayed in the cave, he and his two daughters. Then the firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old, and there's not a man on earth to come into us after the manner of the earth. So come on, let's make our father drink wine and let us lie with him that we may preserve our family through our father. So they both did that two nights in a row and they both became pregnant. One's name was Moab. The other's name was Ammon. And so this is from this heinous crime, this sin, these people, the the line went down and they became a constant, constant thorn in Israel's side. Now this is how sin, the repercussions of sin grow over time. You think that the enemy doesn't know your history? The enemy knows your weaknesses, your parents' weaknesses, their parents' weaknesses, and go back and back and back and back. Sin is multi-generational unless you break that curse. And I see it in my own family. I look back and I see every single, my, my parents, my grand, uh, grandparents, my great, and, and there's always it was just a tumultuous line of, of marriages. You know, it was, it was divorce and everything else. And I remember me and my brother saying, we have to break this. And so, and, and so that was one of the things that God used in my life to show me his power is when I was going through times in my life with my amazing, beautiful wife. And I was like, yeah, you know what? We, we need to end this. This ain't going to happen. And we were both like, well, what are we going to do? If we do this, we are going to be disappointing the Lord. And it's the Lord who did it. It wasn't us, right? Miraculously keeping this together to break that chain. 
And so you have to know that the enemy knows your weaknesses. The enemy from multiple generations before. And so you got to be ready and you got to be prepared and you got to break that by obeying Christ. Do not give in to intimidation. It will make you sin against God. Nehemiah, he spoke out despite this fear of man. Look at verse 20. He said, I answered them, the God of heaven will give us success. He confronted it and we must speak up for God regardless of the uncomfortable response we get from his enemies. We have to do it in love, but if we know the God of heaven is behind us, we have to, we have to speak out. Number three, he was intimidated by this enormous task ahead. We talked about these physical expectations of building the wall, the actual work, the intimidation, the, uh, the opposition. I know many of you who are in your jobs, you're overwhelmed with stuff going on. You got stuff hitting you from all different angles. Maybe you're working towards something. Uh, 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 you're, you're on a project, maybe in your personal life. Writing project, who knows what it is. And you, you see these obstacles. Maybe you're trying to change your life. Maybe you're trying to make a change for the better. And you're trying to change your behavior. You're trying to turn from your sin. And the difficulty is there. It's, you look at it, and the reason why it looks so difficult is because you're looking too far ahead. You're going, man, all right, so if I do this and I do that, like how am I going get to get through when I, when I do those five steps down there? I'm never going to be able to do it. You become intimidated by the work ahead. But the beauty of God is he wants us to trust in daily bread. Not weekly bread, monthly bread, or yearly bread, or a decade of bread. He wants us to trust in daily bread, meaning one step at a time, God is going to feed us. We're going to go in the right direction, one step at a time, God will provide for us. And then the next step, and then the next step, and then the next step. And that's what I believe Nehemiah was doing here. He didn't know how it was all, he didn't know what was going to do. He just knew he had to go to Jerusalem. He now had people around him. He didn't know those people were going to be around him until he took that step. He didn't know the king would say yes until he took that step. And that's exactly what we have to do. He knew the God of heaven would prosper his work. So to summarize, we must not be intimidated by God's enemies psychologically. How do we not do this? Commit to the word. Let your communion with God be your fuel. The will of God will be your guide. And we must not be intimidated by the fear of man. We must not let mental fear, emotional fear, and obviously the physical obstacles that are in front of us. And the way that we can say this is because God, I'm not saying this is anything to do with your ability. Please don't take that like I'm saying, pick yourself up from your bootstraps and run through that wall. That's what the world will tell us to do, right? And there are application to that. I I believe there's some biblical application there. But only after we fully 100% trusted in God. And that begins with Jesus Christ. Okay, because Jesus is the one who not only makes us right with God, he, he cleanses us from our sin, but Jesus is the one that puts us on God's team. And that's why he said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. That's why he said, now go and preach the gospel to every creature. Disciple the nations. And then at the end of Matthew 28, the end of the book of Matthew, he says, lo, I am with you, even till the end of the age. 
Can you say that right now? That God, Jesus Christ is with you or that better yet, that you're with him so that he can be with you. And it comes first by acknowledging your sin before the Lord. Acknowledge your sin. We've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There's nothing we can do to get ourselves right before God. We can't dazzle God with our goodness. We can't dazzle God with how much money we give. We can't dazzle God with how many people we help. Does he like all that stuff? Absolutely. But not as a way that to earn our, to, to buy ourselves into the kingdom. Nope, that can only come when Christ comes into your heart, changes your heart, and then causes you to be a new creature and see with new glasses. And it's as simple as coming to him. Lord, I'm a sinner. Please change me. And, and you know what? He will. Believe on Christ, but it's going to be a one step at a time change. And I have to warn you, as soon as you make that commitment to the Lord, you're now on the radar. If you're not doing anything for the Lord, you're in the best place in the enemy's hands. He'll leave you to yourself. He may grant you great success in your life. You're no threat to him. But as soon as you say, Lord, I'm yours, then you become on the, then you get on on the radar and then the enemies are going to come. But now you have the blueprint. You don't be intimidated. You got God on your side. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much, Father, for having the ability to look and say we have the God of heaven on our side. And we thank you so much for your son, Jesus Christ, Lord, that what he's done for us. And we thank you, Lord, that when he ascended on high, he sent the Holy Spirit to live in our hearts, to guide us. To, to open your word. And I pray, Father, for each person here, Lord, that they would fully give their heart to you. And those, Lord, that have given their heart to you, that they would even reevaluate that commitment, Lord, and come even closer and draw even nearer, for I know that's what you desire. We thank you for your love, Lord. We thank you for your grace. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.